you have a Bible with you, open it to the very last chapter of the book of Hebrews. If you don't, honestly, it's, uh, it's a short verse that we're going to be looking at, just one verse, uh, and it is because it's only one verse printed in your bulletin tonight. We had extra room, so I thought that that might be helpful for you. It is printed there. Um, hopefully, space on the back to take notes if you would so like as we look over this one particular verse. When I was four years ago now being interviewed to come and to pastor this church, they asked me if I could fill out a questionnaire that they gave me, and one of the questions was about my understanding of deacons and elders. And uh, I talked through First Timothy chapter 3, but I, I have always been sort of captivated by this particular verse, Hebrews thirteen seventeen. It is just an incredibly helpful encapsulation of what it means to be an elder and what it means to be a church following that elder. It is the best of both worlds, and there are indeed two worlds here to follow that Josh has responsibilities as an elder, but we then have responsibilities as a congregation under his leadership. This is not a night simply to recognize Josh or simply to install Josh, but it is a night for Crossway to install Josh. It is a night for Crossway to understand the role that we play in having elders above us and the role of that elder itself, himself. There is a charge given to both those who follow and those who lead. This passage is not the fullest description of the qualifications of an elder. As a matter of fact, there are no qualifications here. It is not giving us the end purpose of elders, really in the fullest sense. It is not giving the reasons that Josh might have and should have biblically to be an elder. It is not giving an outline of the authority of an elder, what he has authority over and what he doesn't. But it does sketch, and I think it sketches very well, the nature of the relationship between an elder and a congregation and the role that each of them play. So today, from this one short verse, let us think through the relationship that we are entering and have already entered into with Josh and ask three questions of both the elder and the congregation. Three simple questions. What, how, and why? To answer those, let us read from Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. There God's word says this, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. This is indeed the word of our God. Let us think through first the congregation's role as we have called Josh to be an elder over this congregation? What is the role that the congregation is supposed to have? First question is what? What ought you to do? The answer is very simple. The author of Hebrews says that you are to obey and to submit to him. Now this is kind of interesting because we, if you go to our constitution and bylaws, are congregationally led. We believe that the congregation is the one who leads over all of the, the affairs of the church. We don't have a board of elders that direct the congregation. We know this well because as elders, especially in all of the things that are going on recently and all of the things that are going on, not just with COVID, but with purchasing a new building, I'm telling you what, it would be so much easier if we could just make these decisions on our own. It didn't have to come back to you people time and time and time again. 
And it's not that you don't make bad decisions, it's just that's harder to do. But we think that it's important because we think that the Spirit of God is not just given to elders, it's given to the congregation. It is the congregation who ultimately has control over membership and who has control over the access to the Lord's table. And so it is finally not an elder board that has full authority. It's not synods or council. But one of the things that has been placed under your authority, one of the responsibilities that you have is to call people to be in authority over you. So your exercise of authority is to place people in authority over you. And that means that you give up some of your rights. And that means, as the book of Hebrews says here, those whom you appoint as leaders, you have a commitment to, to obey and to submit to them. And this means, generally speaking, that your stance before Josh is one of obedience and submission. Not in all things, okay? Josh has no right to tell you how to part your hair. He might, but he has no right to. You can say, you've got no right to tell me how to do that. He doesn't even part his hair. It just grows. (laughs) He has no right to tell you how to drive your car or the movies that you're allowed to watch. He probably has some horrible taste in movies anyway. But in matters of faith and in church, you ought to have generally a disposition of trust. If you've called him as an elder, you should have a disposition of trust that when Josh speaks about things of the faith, when he speaks about things of doctrine, when he speaks about things of the way in which Christians ought to live their lives, there ought to be a disposition of trust toward him. You ought to say, we have put him in leadership over us. We have done this for good reason. We ought to listen to him and trust that what he says is right and good and true. And as we've already read in 1 Timothy 3, there's good reason to see why Paul has linked a leadership position over the church with leadership in position over a house. That just as in Ephesians 5, wives are to submit. That doesn't mean that wives submit to their husbands without a voice without an ability to critique them, without an ability to to be real living human beings before them. But it does mean that wives are generally in a stance of committing to the leadership of their husband. And so also now we are in a stance of committing to the leadership of Josh. And here even more so, because you have voted to place him here. Ultimately, as we said at the beginning, you are responsible. So that is what you are to do, but how are you to do it? How are you to do it? Easiest way to say this is you are to do it willingly. You are to be doing it willingly. You are to live your lives under his authority so that he is filled with joy when he serves. Miserable obedience is no obedience at all. So this is the second time today that I have a dog story. It's a different dog this time. We got Penny when I was graduating from school because my wife said, not until you're done with school do you get a dog. And then I graduated, and I'm pretty sure I only graduated now to get that dog. I don't know if I'm disappointed in that or not. I was excited because I I like to go running, and uh, and I was thinking, hey, having a running buddy would be fun. I could take this dog with me, and we could go running. And I I looked up, we got her when she was a puppy, and I looked up, and, and generally it said eight months. We got her in the spring, eight months, October, I can and go running with her in October. And so I, I got ready, and October came. I was pretty pumped. I'm going to run with my dog. I'm going to be one of those dudes who runs with his dog on a leash, of course, because I really hate it when people don't put their dogs on a leash. And so I went running with her, and about a mile into it, 
maybe a half a mile into it, she decided that this was not her thing. And, and I was, she was behind me. And I was like, there's no, I was really worried I'm not going to be able to keep up with my dog. But she's behind me. And I kept pulling and kept pulling. And she, eventually she's just like, nah, bro, this isn't happening. We're going to walk. And it's not even like a good dog-paced walk. It's like, this is a leisurely stroll to look at all the pretty things around. And it was so frustrating. I remember coming home and being like, that's it. I'm not even going to try and train her for this. We're not doing that ever again. It is frustrating to lead something, to try and lead something when all you are honestly doing is ripping it forward, pulling it forward, moving it as hard and using all of your energy just to move it forward. It's like dealing with a child with a horrible attitude. When they do what you want them to do, but only with the deepest, most long, aggravated sigh and eye roll. It is hard to lead that way. And so one of the things that Hebrews says is, my goodness, lead. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. Let them be joyous in their leadership over you. If you continually pull at them, if you continually fight with them, if you continually go out of your way to make life difficult for them, it is a bad way to let them lead. And he finishes this by telling you why you ought to do that. And that is outright selfishness. He says, it is of no advantage to you to make them serve you by groaning. Another way of putting that is, it's of great advantage to you to willingly submit to him, to let him do it with joy, so that you can gain and benefit from it. You do this not just because Christ has called you to do it. It's true. It is an imperative. In verse 17, obey your, to your, obey your leaders and submit to them. There is rightful things to say about the idea that you should do this simply because Christ has called you to do it. But the author of Hebrews goes further and he says, it is to your benefit that you do this so that he can serve with joy. Whenever you hear about groaning, you automatically think of Moses. Moses continually had to put up with the complaints of his people. Oh, it's hot. Oh, we're thirsty. Oh, we're hungry. Oh, we're in the desert. It's not... It's not like Moses stopped and he said, hey, this is a good sp- place to, to kind of camp out because the dry air is really good for my lungs. I know that there's lush land up ahead, but I really just want to kind of stop here. And you no, know, it was God who said, stop. And yet they complained to Moses about his leadership. Now, if Josh leads well and leads rightly, he should lead according to scripture. And so fighting against him is fighting against God. It is fighting against scripture. It doesn't mean that you don't have reasons to critique him. It doesn't mean that you don't have reasons perhaps to even complain about him. But you had better be sure that you are doing it for the right reasons and not simply to grumble and to complain because it's of no advantage to you. It is Josh's task, as we will talk in just a minute, to get you through this life. It is to your advantage so that you would flourish in the Christian life to let him do this with joy and gladness. Because if you don't let him lead, if you don't listen to his voice as he listens to the word of God, there's two things that happen. Either he is going to eventually stop working altogether. He's just going to stop trying to lead. He's going to do what I did. He's going to come home. He's going to throw the leash down. He's going to say, I've had, I've had enough. I'm done. Is basically, by the way, what Moses did. I'm pretty sure in my reading of it, that's at least part of what gets him in trouble. 
is he's just fed up. Understandable. Josh, he put up with it for 40 years, dude, so good luck. But (laughs) either that or leaders do the other thing, and that is they grab you by the nape of the neck and they take you where they want you to go, whether you like it or not. In neither case are you being led. Either you're physically present somewhere else, you're physically doing the things that that you're supposed to do, but your heart isn't in it, or you're not doing those things and your heart's not in it. But either way, it is of no advantage to you. Obey, do so willingly, because it is for your good. That brings us then to the elder's role. What is the elder supposed to do here? What is his task? Josh, your task is to watch over their souls. Simply as Jesus watches over their souls. You are patterned after the Lord Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean that you are a savior. It does mean that you are to imitate how he cares for his people and how he goes about watching over their souls. Indeed, he lays down his life for them. The whole purpose of the gospel is to say that God became man to lay down his life to serve them and to lead them out of hell into the good grace of God. That they were sinners needing salvation. And so Jesus doesn't simply tell them to grab onto their bootstraps and try a little harder. Jesus doesn't tell anyone that what they really need to do is to follow rules A, B, C, and D and then he might let them in. But he says, you can never do it. So I will lay down my life and serve for you. This is also one of the links back to Ephesians 5. The husbands are to lead their wives, but they lead them in love. The calling of a husband is to lay down his life for his wife, for her spiritual well-being. And, And frankly, that is exactly what you are to do. You are to watch over their souls. You are to take care that you get them from here to heaven. Sometimes that means that you're there to make them flourish. And these are the best case scenarios where people are following your leadership and God is blessing it and they they flourish. It's the picture of Ephesians 4 where Paul says that he gave apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Listen, that is an, you realize what I just read? To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That you all are going to be formed in the best case scenario to the measure of the fullness of the Son of God, the incarnate God in human flesh. That is An absolutely outstanding passage. And Paul says, this is our desire. This is true human flourishing. So that we may no longer be children, he goes on to say, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, and by deceitful schemes. That's the best case scenario. But as we watch over their souls, as you watch over their souls, sometimes it's to get them to flourish and sometimes it's simply to get them through the fire. Jude 22 and through 23 say this, Have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. There are some people, brother, who are going to come through this church and are going to enter into heaven with the flames of hell flickering on the ends of their robes. You're not going to have everyone flourish. But it's your job to work hard to get them there. 
That is way, the way you watch over their souls. You work, you work, you work, you do everything within your human that you can humanly and possibly do, knowing that you can't save them, knowing that you cannot change their hearts and their minds, but imploring them and encouraging them and exhorting them to hold on to the faith in Jesus Christ. You do this by highlighting orthodoxy and orthopraxy. You teach people what they are to believe, and then you show them how they are to live. Trouble is never going to be in saying yes. It's always going to be in saying no. And so you also cannot be a pleaser of men. And that leads us to how you are to do it. You are to do it faithfully. The author of Hebrews says that you are to do this as those who have to give an account. One day, brother, you will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and you will give an account for every action that you have made as an elder. That ought to help you not to please men but God. Because men ultimately have no authority over you. Men can ultimately do nothing to you that Christ cannot undo and make better in the end. But you do have to give an account to him. And we know that judgment begins in the house of God. One of the things you get when you read continuously through the Old Testament is the prophets look directly at people. And as the prophets look at people, they're filled with these two twin sins, idolatry and injustice. They have left the God who has called them, and they are therefore filled with injustice and violence and bloodshed. The interesting bit of that is when you go to read the histories, when you read Judges or First and Second Samuel or First and Second Kings or First and Second Chronicles, the emphasis is almost never on the people. The emphasis is always on the leaders. So in Judges, why do the people do anything they want to do? They do whatever they want to because there's no king. When you put a king in there, what do the people do? The people do exactly what the king does. Generally speaking, brother, people are not going to outpace their leaders. There might be the rare sheep. There might be the rare sheep who outpaces the elders in knowledge and in holiness and in godliness. But generally, that's never going to be the case. Be faithful to Jesus Christ. Be faithful to your calling in the gospel. This is how you will also watch over their souls. They need to be able to imitate you. You need to be above reproach. Not just because you're going to give an account. Not just because that account is stricter. Which it is, James. One book over in James 3 says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that those who teach will be judged with a greater strictness. It's not just because you're going to be judged, but it's because of the why you are to do it. You are to do it because of love. Notice that when he's speaking to this congregation, joy is assumed. It is assumed that you want to serve with joy. It's assumed that you want to serve with happiness and gladness. It is assumed that you want to be focused on loving them and caring about them. Paul says that those who aspire to do this, it's not necessarily a special calling to be an elder, but an elder has to aspire to it. He says it's a noble task. The question becomes, why do you aspire to do this? Why did you accept this? And I'm saying that knowing full well you can't go back now, but you know, you should have asked yourself that question already, but why did you accept it? 
I pray that you do it because you love it. You want to serve these people. You want to help them grow. You want to help them know Christ better and better and better. You want to serve Christ by serving his church. And that you should love it. Not just the people, although you should love the people, but the work itself. You should love those difficult decisions, knowing that you have been placed here to make those decisions. You ought to love the times that you have to spend weeping with people because they care that you weep with them. Certainly you should enjoy the times rejoicing and praying and counseling them. Friend, love it and have joy in it. Not because it gives you power, not because it gives you authority. You're not Aladdin or you're not Jafar in Aladdin. But have joy and have love in it because it demands much of you and you see its fruitfulness in other people. Love the joy, brother, of tracking down the one missing sheep. Love the joy of weeping with those who are in pain and misery. Love the joy and rejoicing with those who have been blessed by God. Love the fruit you see in their lives as God works through his word and rejoice in him. Love the work because you love the people, because the people you love have been loved by God in the gospel. And friends, in all of this, let me act as a bridge between you and our elder. To Josh, this is a wonderful congregation to lead. Coming up on four years of service here, four years of being called and being placed here, that has gone by very, very quickly. You know, the reason why it's gone by quickly is because it's been filled with joy. Four years is a long, long time. If, if it is filled with grumbling and complaining, and if it is filled with hardship and work and work and work, but it's not. It's gone by quickly because it's been filled with joy and love. There is difficulty, yes. There's always tough decisions. There's always going to be time for tears. There will be brother long days for you. You'll be called on to do elder stuff after you've already done the normal human being stuff that you do. I don't have an actual job. You have an actual job. And you're still called to be an elder on top of that. But I am honestly filled with joy at leading this congregation. And I know the great kindness of God in bringing me here and I pray that you might have that same kind of joy as well. To the rest of you, I have every confidence in Josh that he will lead this church and help to lead this church with integrity and gentleness, that he will lead them scripturally, that he will lead us without rank hypocrisy. I have every confidence as well that he will not do so perfectly, but under grace and under mercy that he will do so honestly desiring to do what God has placed him here to do. The passage that stands before us is brilliant and beautiful because of the promise that it holds out for us. For the elder, there is joy. For the congregation, there is benefit and advantage. And for our Christ, there is glory as we unify together around his word to do the work that he has placed us here to do. So shepherd, lead well. Sheep, follow willingly. And in all of this, may Christ be glorified. Let us pray. Father, you have indeed done a great and 
wonderful thing for us. Every single person in here is filled with sin and rebellion against you. We don't care previously what you had to say to us. We don't care what you had demanded of us. We oftentimes turn away from you. We care about what we want. We care about fighting for that. We had no care or love for you. Our hearts were far from you. And the best way to describe who we were were enemies before you in rebellion against your kingdom and against your king. But in a miracle, that same king who had every right to demand our blood, who had every right to demand our lives and instead laid down his life, that we might be redeemed, that we might be saved, that we might be moved into his kingdom for his glory as his grace and his mercy and his faithfulness to us shine. Father, that is a wonderful thing that you have called us to. It is the best of news. Good news falls so short of explaining what that is. And we have been called then to minister that good news, to encourage people and exhort them in the kingdom of our Lord and God, to be called, as we have read in the book of Thessalonians, to be worthy of the calling that God has placed upon our lives and to walk in a manner worthy of God. I pray, Father, that we will do that. And I pray that the leadership of this church and Pastor Richard in Josh and in myself, do so faithfully before you so that your people might resemble you and give you glory for the good that you do. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.